Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Hi, this is Riley Fessler. After Trump's victory in Iowa, we are all wondering how Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis will react. Today's episode from The Silo is a look back to when Nikki Haley first joined the race, featuring a conversation between Grant Haver and Norm Ornstein on Words Matter. Please enjoy. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells didn't catch people's eyes. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to Words Matter, the podcast that I do every week with the great Kavita Patel, who is en route back from Europe, will be with us next week. But today, again, we're joined by our great producer, Grant Haver, to talk about the issues of the day. And today, at least to start with, we're going to talk about Nikki Haley and uh, in a broader sense, it's not just about the horse race of who will win a Republican nomination. Uh, but really about the nature of today's Republican Party and what's going on in the dynamic out there. And related to that, I think we can also address another set of realities uh, that they're closing in on Donald Trump. We're probably going to see some indictments forthcoming within a matter of uh, days, if not more likely weeks. We'll have a new grand jury convened in Georgia. The release of some of that grand jury material suggests that we're going to have indictments forthcoming, probably not till the early part of March would be my guess. But of course, we also see the wagons circling in New York and a much more aggressive stance now taken by Jack Smith, the uh, special counsel appointed by the Attorney General Merrick Garland to dig more deeply into all of those Trump matters. He is growing more hysterical about it, but of course... The expectation that he is going to be at minimum distracted is probably what prompted Nikki Haley to get into this race, but we can expect a large cast of pretenders emerging. And when each one does, as Donald Trump has now done with Nikki Haley, he will attack them vigorously, if not uh, viciously. So we can talk some about Nikki Haley and her history. I am, I will say right at the outset, not a fan. What do you think, Grant? As a South Carolinian, I have a significant amount of struggles with the way she portrayed our state 
So Nikki Haley in her opening video cut together one of her sayings, which was something to the effect of it's a great day in South Carolina. Well, some of you might not know, but the median income in South Carolina is less than $30,000 a year. Education ranks 44th in the country, infrastructure 36th. It's not a great day in South Carolina, unfortunately. There's so much work to be done in the state. Uh, I worked for the vice president in the primary in 2020 in Charleston, and I love South Carolina, and it's very frustrating to see so many bad actors coming from the state. One thing that struck me was that she launched her campaign, then she did some press. One interview was with Sean Hannity, known expert journalist and interviewer, Sean Hannity, who asked, what's one policy difference you have with Donald Trump? Just one thing. And she basically said, I'm younger than him, generational change. And that just isn't going to work. Like, I just don't imagine that doing it, especially because the Republican electorate is older on average than the voting populace at large and America in general. So I can't imagine saying I'm younger than him is a good look when many of your voters are older than you. So what did you think of her her sort of announcement, Norm? It was, of course, a soft and fuzzy introduction. Uh, just what one might expect in this sort of thing in terms of the atmosphere. The content was pure Trumpism, and it told me a lot about the Republican Party. This much I'll say about Nikki Haley, having watched her as governor, and it's important to keep in mind that Trump basically saved her, just as he saved Mike Pence. You had two governors, one in Indiana, the other in South Carolina, who were increasingly unpopular in their own states. And if they had stuck around and had run for re-election, I think both would have lost. In primaries, of course, these are uh, red states. But what I've seen with Nikki Haley from the beginning of her career is that she is a shapeshifter. She has no strong principles. She will bend with whatever winds are there. At the dog park this morning, one of the other dog owners was saying, you know, I really admired her when she took down the Confederate flag when she was governor. And I said, one thing you can be sure of, she would not have taken down the Confederate flag if it would have cost her at that point in South Carolina. She saw where the winds were blowing and believed that that would basically enhance her own political interests. And if you look at her since Trump did rescue her and made her the ambassador to the United Nations, everything that she did, moving from being very pro-Trump to getting some distance from Trump to coming back to Trump, all of that is looking at where the winds are blowing and seeing what would enhance her own political prospects. She is hyper-ambitious and has no strong moral core or sense. Having said that, because she is, now she's trying to emphasize it a little bit more, a woman of color, because she has the foreign policy experience, uh, you can't say that she will be a disaster as a candidate. I would be stunned if she won a nomination. But the other thing about it, Grant, is 
that amidst the warm and fuzzy, we had all of the Trumpian tropes, the socialists, the CRT, the woke culture, all of that stuff that basically plays to the G-spots of the Republican primary electorate. So Nikki Haley is not a candidate running as a moderate. She is not a candidate running as an anti-Trump, except by saying, as you indicated, I'm younger, he's older. This is not a candidate who is a traditional conservative. She will go in whatever direction the Republican electorate and elite want her to go, and that direction is over towards the radical side. I mean, so one question I have as someone who cares about democracy and wants to make sure that we have people in the race who support and value the democracy of the country is, do we think she is a threat to democracy? I disagree with her fundamentally on a variety of issues, and we can expound upon her beliefs about a national abortion ban or her beliefs about CRT. But I'm always going to disagree with Republicans on those issues. Is she going to be a threat to the democracy of the country? And that's a very good frame to use. She is nowhere near the same threat that Donald Trump is or Ron DeSantis, or some of the other potential candidates, Ted Cruz, for example, or Josh Hawley, or Tom Cotton. But she is a threat nonetheless, and she's a threat because she will do nothing to stop the authoritarian elements of her party from moving forward. And you could be sure that if she is the president and Republicans have a majority in the Senate, she will continue to nominate radical partisan hack judges who will themselves undermine the fundamentals of democracy. So would I be as frantic if she somehow ended up as president compared to a DeSantis or a Trump? No. Would I believe that democracy would be undermined further, deteriorate more, and lead us down that path towards the abyss with her as president? You bet. Same with Christy Nome, I would say. Christy Nome, the only thing that uh, distinguishes Christy Nome, the governor of South Carolina, from Nikki Haley, at least so far as we know, is that Christy Nome is a corrupt grifter who did everything she could to protect her daughter using the power of the government to line her pockets. I haven't seen that with Haley, but, you know, there isn't a Republican candidate, a potential one, maybe with the very tiny exception of Larry Hogan, who is probably more like a traditional conservative than uh, some of the others. He only looked moderate in Maryland because he was pragmatic enough when he was governor to see how far he could go with the legislature. But when you have a Larry Hogan saying he wouldn't rule out supporting Trump if Trump is the nominee, that also tells you something about the fundamental nature now of the Republican Party. It is not a Trump party. It is a Trumpian party. It is a Trumpist party. And let's talk a little bit about the fleece-wearing Glenn Youngkin as well, who also, I would say, is a direct threat to democracy. 
When you have Glenn Youngkin, who was portrayed during his campaign for governor by the Washington Post and others as a clever moderate because he wore fleece, because he appeared to be more uh, of a reasonable figure like the dad next door. But when you have Glenn Youngkin basically supporting, allowing searches by government authorities into the menstrual habits of young women, that tells you all you need to know about where the Republican Party is. It's an authoritarian party. One thing you wanted to note there that I sort of want to zoom in on is the Trumpification of the Republican Party. And I think when we talk about that often sort of in in the media sphere, we tend to look at kind of high level, are people conforming what they are saying to what Trump is saying? So the Nikki Haley, I'm not sure I can point out a policy issue upon which we disagree. But I think the, the real news here is at the state and local level. And when I went and worked on the presidential campaign, something that was brought to light is how valuable and important state party apparatuses are and how the people who work in them are just moms and dads. And, you know, they're your teacher, they're your nurse, they're just average Americans. So the bar is incredibly low in a lot of these places, especially if they're very one side or the other, right? You don't feel like you need to show up to a Democratic Party meeting in Arlington County, Virginia, because they're all Democrats. What are you talking about? There's no, there's no fight there. And in places like South Carolina, that means that the parties are actually not very strong, and they were taken over by pro-Trump forces. So way back in 2016, we saw at the convention, there was a real fight. People walked out. There was a potential that Trump wouldn't get the nomination of the Republican Party because someone like Ken Cuccinelli would grow a backbone. Well, it turns out that Ken Cuccinelli did grow a backbone, but that's not going to happen this time. The Republican convention will be filled with Trumpists from Florida, from South Carolina, from Arizona, but from places like New York City. All of these state local party apparatuses have been taken over, and that impacts who runs, who wins, and who gets fundraising. You know, you've raised a broader point there too, Grant, which is whatever happens with the Republican presidential contest, indeed, whatever happens with the presidential contest more generally in 2024, even if Joe Biden or another Democrat wins, What's happening at the state and local level is undermining democracy and creating two countries, really. When I look at what's happening in Alabama, Mississippi, in Florida, in Oklahoma, I'm seeing at the local level the takeover of school boards by radicals. And when you have, you know, in Sarasota, Florida, in Manatee County, you have the school board and the other local authorities threatening teachers that if any book that might be on the banned list or could potentially be on the banned list, if teacher gives access to the students to that, that teacher could be subject 
to criminal penalties, to jail time. When you see in Duval County, Florida, that they have banned the biography of Roberto Clemente and yet allow the biographies of white athletes, what we're seeing there is a couple of things. It's the threat to public education. They're going after teachers. They're basically going to get rid of a lot of the teachers. In Florida itself, they've basically taken away all the qualifications so that they can get radicals who have not been trained to come in as teachers. When you see in Michigan this crazy bill that allows a huge sum of money to go for private education vouchers, most of it going to rich people who are already sending their kids to private schools, draining resources from the public schools, you can see that we're going to end up with a direct threat, not just to public education, but to the regular order and to the unity of the country. Racists are moving in and taking over at these local levels. And governors from Tate Reeves in Mississippi to Ron DeSantis to Kevin Stitt, across the board, Republican governors, whether they run for president or not, are turning their states into basically authoritarian, racist, nativist outposts. Residents of those states are going to suffer. I haven't even gotten into the impact of the Dobbs decision and what we're already seeing there and what we'll see grow. And of course, we have a threat that we could have radical courts that will impose some of these restrictions on fundamental freedoms across all 50 states. We have some threats out there that go beyond whether a Nikki Haley wins a nomination or a Ron DeSantis or a Donald Trump does. You know, I should mention one other element here that is an important distinction. My guess is that if there's a Haley presidency, it would differ from a Donald Trump presidency in one fundamental way. And that might be true of some of the other candidates as well, although only uh, a handful of them. And that is in foreign policy. Donald Trump would go all in on protecting and enhancing the standing of his economic partners and allies in the authoritarian axis. He would go all in on Saudi Arabia, Russia, Egypt, and North Korea. I'm not sure, and attack our NATO allies, undermine Ukraine. I'm not sure we would see the same thing from a Haley. But what we also know is a Republican Party built on antipathy towards Russia has now, as a general matter, become pro-Russian and generally anti-NATO. So there are differences there, but we're still on a very steep downward slide. I think that is true, and I was a little shocked that that's not what she raised when asked point blank about differences between her and President Trump, because that was part of her speech announcing her presidency was that she was going to support Ukraine and defend democracy, blah, 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 blah. Now, of course, as you say, we kind of have to, to see how stuff pans out. But I think the important thing here is that most voters don't vote on foreign policy. They don't care that much. It's not that big of an issue. And so when you look at the Republicans in Congress, you see that most of them hew to the previous more cold warrior stance, because even if the general population, the, the voting population has shifted for Republicans in a more uh, 
pro-Russian direction, they don't care that much. They're going to focus on CRT or guns or immigration. Those are the things that rile them up. Foreign policy is just not going to do it. But when you look at the field overall and think about who could run, who do you see out there, A, that you think could win if it's not Trump or DeSantis? And B, who do you think would be the best for democracy? Are there people that, you know, in open primaries, Democrats should work towards trying to make sure that they are the leader of the Republican Party as opposed to some of these other schmucks? Well, one thing we can be sure of based on 2022 is that Democratic operatives and the Democratic Party apparatus will actually push to get the most radical candidate with the best chance of drawing the contrast, exciting its own base and what, winning. What do you think about danger. that? I think that's super scary. I'm, it is. That just scares me so much. It just it worries me so much. And especially when we say like, democracy is on the ballot, democracy is on the ballot. Like, we got to work with people who are odious, who we disagree with, but like, we have to agree on democracy. And it just, it scares me so much, Norm. With good reason. Uh, It's playing with fire, to use the cliche. But here's the depressing and fundamental reality is that the erosion of fundamental rights, freedoms of, you know, move away from racial differences and divisions, a move away from attacks on the LGBT community and on the trans community, that they're all bad. There isn't one who is going to fight against it. You are not going to have a Republican candidate getting up on a debate stage and saying, we have to return to uh, our traditional conservative values, to the Republican Party that saved the Voting Rights Act in 1965 to the party of Lincoln, to at least in terms of the enhancement of democracy at home and abroad, to even the party of Reagan. Nobody's going to get up and challenge the gun lobby. Nobody's going to get up and and say, you know, we have real issues at the border, but it's not an open border and we're going to have to deal with it in a different way. None of them are going to say, We don't even know what CRT is. It's a bunch of nonsense. That's not going to happen. So if I'm looking at and handicapping the race, first I would say whatever legal trouble Donald Trump is in, he's still the favorite. And he's the favorite because he has enough of a hold on the core part of the party that given the rules that they have and given the likely dynamic, which I believe is going to be not radically different from what we saw in 2012 and 2016. 2012 was Romney. And when Trump emerged as a genuine contender in 2016, in both instances, we saw the phenomenon that all the other candidates said, you know what, this is going to come down to Romney and one other, the anti-Romney, and Trump and the anti-Trump, And so we got to get rid of all these others so I can be the one left standing to take on Romney or Trump. And they destroyed each other and let the two waltz through to nominations. With the rule in the Republican Party that's mostly a form of winner take all, if Trump can hold on to 30% of the electorate and you get 10 other candidates, he's still the most likely nominee. Now, among the others, if that's not going to happen, 
I would say there's probably a greater likelihood of a Glenn Youngkin emerging than a Ron DeSantis. And that's partly because I just watched the debate of DeSantis with Charlie Crist in the uh, gubernatorial race. And DeSantis, if he's challenged, if he's under attack, has very little ability to deal with it. He is incapable of dealing with serious criticism coming from within his own ranks, from his own party. So I'm a skeptic about DeSantis, although his open authoritarian racist uh, appeals, you know, are going to resonate with some portion of the electorate. But I think if there is this strong desire to win after a, a Democratic presidency, they're going to look at a Yunkin and say, you know what, he believes all the same things that DeSantis does. He'll behave in exactly the same way. That's what he's done as governor of Virginia. But he doesn't come across as threatening. He could probably pull back those suburban voters and some of those independents. And I would fear him just as much because he is an authoritarian and a racist, period. I think one sort of last point that I, I want to hit on that circles back to something you were talking about earlier and sort of going around the country to these different Trumpy governors like Youngkin, like Nome, like Nikki Haley, like Ron DeSantis, is that these people are are winning. They're winning elections. They're beating reasonable Democratic opponents. You know, look at Terry McAuliffe, look at Charlie Crist. Now, where they are best is something we can argue about, but they're winning by significant margins. And that's something we have to think about. The fact that Republican state and local parties are being taken over by these Trumpists means that this is going to be here for a long time. And we as people who care about democracy and we as people that want to move forward in this country have to think about how to really grapple with this. Because I don't believe that we're going to win every time. And You're exactly that's right. a problem. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's also a part of my frustration with our national press corps, uh, our mainstream press corps, that continues to treat the Republican Party as basically a normal party and still refers to some of the members as moderates. There are no moderates certainly in elective office almost anywhere anymore. But what it means is that when voters get upset with the status quo, they're not going to say the alternative is just unacceptable. So you're right. Democrats are not going to win every time. Looking at the Senate contests in 2024, there are basically 11 Republican seats up, 10 plus the second Nebraska seat to fill the remainder of Ben Sass's term after he left to be the president of the University of Florida. And they're all in pretty solidly red states. The best chance the Democrats have of taking a Republican seat is Rick Scott in Florida. And what we saw with a very credible candidate for the Senate, Val Demings against Marco Rubio, with, as you said, a credible candidate for governor, former governor, Charlie Crist against Ron DeSantis, and the Republicans won handily. We're not uh, in a great position to hold on to the Senate. There are a number of vulnerable seats the Democrats have. And it's entirely possible that we could see a Republican nominee winning. But even if they don't win in 2024, the threat 
is there for exactly the reasons that you've suggested. The zeitgeist of the party has changed. But what we also know is this is a part of the cancer of tribalism, Grant. That, you know, I'm looking at a case that I would view as the limiting case, which is the Senate race in Ohio this last time. The Democrat, Tim Ryan, ran a pitch-perfect race. He ran as a populist in a state where there's a big blue-collar population, and he was running against a phony, a complete phony in J.D. Vance, somebody who should not be anywhere near public office. Vance won handily. Voters were not looking at which one would be a better senator, which one had a moral core, which one really represented my underlying values. It was, I'm a Republican, he's a Republican, I'm going to vote for the Republican. And that's where the tribalism comes in. And it's also where Democrats have to find a way to continue to pick off those suburban, more educated voters who are uh, and have been Republicans and hope they will be turned off by the radicalism. But even with that, if you end up with nominees who, and especially a presidential nominee, who at least appears to be less radical, you're going to have trouble holding on to those voters. But we've got a challenge that's going to last for a very long time because the whole culture of Republicans in the country has moved in a very disturbingly radical and uh, pro-authoritarian direction. All the worst instincts are being played to and they're being embraced. And it's a big problem. That's uh, a good place uh, to close out this segment of the uh, of the program. So, for all of you who joined us, thank you so much. Uh, another uh, shout out and hat tip to our great producer, Grant Haver, uh, who's joined me these last few weeks when Kavita was out of the country. To the executive producer of Deep State Network, Chris Kotnor, we hope you will consider subscribing. There's a lot of really interesting content, even both beyond this show. And uh, we will follow that up, actually, for those of you who do subscribe with our members-only segment next. So, Norm, we're back for our members. And one of the pieces we wanted to hit on was this train derailment that happened earlier this month in a town in Ohio which caused this massive plume of hazardous chemicals to be shot in the air and spread around. What were your initial reactions to the event and what people are saying about it now? Well, of course, it was a shock and it's frightening when you think about toxic wastes getting up into the air and also into the water. And as it moves into the water, it's a potential threat that goes beyond of the area of East Palestine, Ohio. There are several things to consider here, though. One is we know that a lot of the hazardous materials transported around the country are done by rail. And we know that there was a, an Obama-era regulation trying to move the rail companies to improve the safety to make sure that things like what happened in Ohio would not happen. 
with new generation brakes and other elements that would keep trains from derailing, uh, from creating this kind of problem. Donald Trump erased that regulation, removed the safety standards at the instigation of the rail companies like Norfolk Southern, the one involved here. We also know that when this tragedy or disaster occurred, that on the advice of the CEO of Norfolk Southern Railroad, Governor Mike DeWine ordered that the chemical cars be burned. We'll find out at some point whether the threats that came from the chemicals just being there, as opposed to being burned, whether that was like saying, all right, I can stab you or I can shoot you, take your choice. We don't know that yet, but it was obviously done without stepping back and saying, let's consult experts on what's the best way to deal with these hazardous materials. Then we know that Joe Biden called Governor Mike DeWine to say, we'll do whatever we can. And DeWine said he did not call him back. DeWine said that the CEO of Norfolk Southern Railroad, a donor of his, a significant donor of his, quote, gave him his word that there wouldn't be any real problem here. We know that the Norfolk Southern CEO promised to show up at a town hall in the area to talk about what had happened and was a no-show when people convened. And we know, at least it was reported, that the railroad was handing out checks to residents to try and, I imagine, keep from a devastating lawsuit, but also to try and keep everybody quiet at the moment. And finally, what we know is that Republicans, in an organized way, are trying to blame it all on Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who had nothing to do with any of this, And of course, we also have the clown Jim Jordan saying that whatever happened to infrastructure, we had this reform, but we're having trains derail all over the place as if an infrastructure bill just passed would magically cure those problems that have built up over many decades. So we're not going to get, in this instance, what you would hope would be the case if Congress were legitimate under the Republicans in the House which is genuine oversight about why the regulation was needed, what happened to it, what could be done, what's the best way to deal with these kinds of wastes, and put the railroad on the carpet where it clearly belongs because they went fast and loose with the safety regulations and tried to make sure that they could extract a few more dollars without improving safety. We're not going to get that, and we don't yet know what the damage is going to be to the people living in this area of Ohio or more broadly. It may be one of those things like the burn pits that Joe Biden talked about in his uh, State of the Union message, where the problems show up years or decades later with a dramatic increase in certain kinds of cancer. We don't know exactly what will happen here. What we do know is that this is the sort of thing that shouldn't have happened and that we need some changes in laws and regulation to make sure it doesn't happen again. And we're not likely to get that given the dysfunction that we have with a Republican Congress. 
I just want to make a sort of a few quick points. One, of course, our thoughts and prayers are going out to the people most affected by this, the people of East Palestine, Ohio. Of course, one thing to note here is that the poor will always be hurt the worst from issues like this. There was, I remember reading about the sort of evacuation order and people were able to go to other houses or houses of extended family members or go to hotels. And that's just not always the case for people dealing with poverty. And especially if you're in a rural area, those hotels fill up. Those places that you can go fill up with other people. And so that's something we have to continue to watch for is how are the people who need the help the most being treated throughout this emergency? Because they're going to be the ones that are left after this 10 to 20 years from now that are dealing with the effects. Because if you have the wealth to move, you're probably going to move. So that's just something to keep in mind. The second point I wanted to make was around the regulation flip-flopping administration to administration. We see this as just commonplace now, whether it's around electrification and climate change issues, whether it's around just this issue, as you're talking about with these the train breaking stuff and foreign policy, the Mexico City policy. They're ju- just these issues that, you know, on day one with a stroke of a pen, go from one thing to another or, you know, over the course of four years, get changed slowly back and forth. And we need a functional Congress that actually puts these things into law that don't get changed. And this is always a problem the more that we have a dysfunctional Congress, is that you're going to see these this ping-ponging of regulations that makes us less safe and makes any change less permanent. And that's something we really, really have to grapple with. Joe Biden, as a president who cares about delivering for average Americans, and Democrats as a party that cares particularly about dealing with the working class and the poor who are, again, most affected by these issues, need to have this as a focus. This is how democracies work for people, is by having highly effective agencies like FEMA, like the EPA, that can step in and deal with these issues, not only at a technical level, but at an emotional level that make people feel safe even when they see a massive plume of chemicals getting thrown into the sky. And that's something that I wish got more attention. You are exactly right on all of those fronts. And I think your point about the poor is particularly well taken, that it's a double whammy for poor people living in the area. They are more vulnerable to begin with, and they're not able to move away, even temporarily. And they're likely to be left with a smaller tax base and a poorer area compared to what they had before. And that's something that government needs to focus on. And it's also something that makes it clear, this whole disaster makes it clear that those who want to blow up government, who talk about more limited government, who have a war on regulations, and now the Republicans in the House are trying to use the Congressional Review Act to erase most of Biden's regulations, they're not going to succeed because of the Democratic Senate and the ability of the president to veto those things. But it's the mindset. And that mindset leads to more disasters, more tragedies, more grifting 
as they take contributions, as DeWine has done from these executives, and then try to protect them and their companies from improving uh, public safety so that they can make a few more nickels. It's not a good development more generally, and it once again reflects the difference uh, in mindset uh, that our parties have. Some of that would be there even if there were no Trumpism, but uh, it's much, much worse. And with that, thank you, loyal listeners and subscribers to the Deep State Network. Again, thanks to Grant Haver and Chris Codnor, and we'll see you next week.